Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippin, along with my co-host, Lucia Holsether, here to celebrate the fifth anniversary of this podcast. The first podcast aired on March 13th, 2017, and our first guest was Ira Shore, who has graciously agreed to come back to the podcast to help us celebrate this fifth anniversary. In the first podcast, we talked about critical pedagogy on questioning the status quo, and of course, we are still questioning the status quo. Ira Shore is now Professor Emeritus of the City University of New York CUNY Graduate Center, where he taught urban education and critical pedagogies and literacy. He is the author of so many books, and I use these books frequently, especially uh, in my work with teaching interns. Critical Teaching in Everyday Life, Culture Wars, School and Society and the Conservative Restoration, Frere for the Classroom, my favorite, A Pedagogy for Liberation. It's the book I reach for when things get really crazy in higher education. Empowering Education, and When Students Have Power, which is probably my favorite title of all his books. So we welcome Ira Shore today to talk about the 50th plus anniversary of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy, uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and also to celebrate the 100th uh, birthday of Paulo Freire, and to celebrate uh, Ira Shore's continued questioning of the status quo and challenging us to be better teachers and better democratic partners with and for our students. Welcome, Ira Shore, to Nothing Never Happens. So welcome. You look well. Oh, thank you. So do you. So nice to see you again. Well, I am recovering. overcoming COVID right now. Uh, oh, really? My, my daughter's a kindergarten parapro this year, just graduated last year uh-huh. from college and brought it home. <laughs> so yeah, they, they, they're real. <laughs> yes. So <clears throat> it's, um, it's very deadly here and uh, spread everywhere. And um, we had uh, like many deaths a day, you know, and so on. And it seems to be leveling off now. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is, uh, which well, is good. We hope, yeah, for this round, at least. But it's disturbed everything. And so it's um, the, the life, everyday life is uh, just uh, very uh, disorderly now. Uh, and uh, in education, teachers are um, under tremendous stress and also being asked to uh, overnight uh, accommodate to a drastic situation for which they have no preparation and few resources. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like an, an impossible because when it ends, suddenly we'll go back to a kind of normal and all this uh, interruption for several years. Uh, well, well it does, it's not a base from which to continue you know, uh, trying to be an educator. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an interregnum, an interruption that um, we'll, it's going to end. And then um, we'll, re- we'll restart like uh, the, the dialogues and so on that, um, that, that help us do our work. 
Yeah, and I wonder, I'm, I'm speaking for myself here, um, this pandemic and having to pivot to Zoom, et cetera, and then classroom masked, and then back to Zoom because I tested positive uh, over yes. a week ago. Um, it, it, it changed my pedagogy. It changed my commitments and my priorities. And I think some good ways, uh, you know, less is more kind of ways. So I'm interested in, in hearing from teachers and out of this pandemic experience. Um, so, so thank you for okay. coming back to us in a fifth year anniversary. Never really imagined we'd be this far along and that I'd have such a good colleague to join me in this journey. Yes. So how shall we begin? Lucia is going to ask. We were sort of thinking to begin with a conversation about um, wow, I love your mug. Um, just for people who don't have the visual, <laughs> um, Ira is drinking from a mug that says, I don't need Google. My wife tells me everything. Is that what it says? My wife knows everything. Oh, my wife knows everything. Was that a gift? Was that a gift? Yes. Yes. yes she, she bought it for me. All right. All right. Shout out. Shout out to spouses everywhere. Um, <laughs> um that was a, that was a that was a needed diversion. Um, we wanted to start with the concrete and to ask you, like, as you you sort of you're in retirement, but of course still very busy and doing all kinds of things, um, living through the pandemic, thinking with teachers and organizers and learners everywhere. Are there moments in your teaching and or organizing that? have in the last, I don't know, days, weeks, months, like flashed up to you as images that you're holding on to or thinking with, especially in, in any kind of acute way right now? Mm -hmm. Yes, well, um, first, this is the uh, 100th anniversary of Paulo Freire's birth. Uh, uh, it's now passed because he was born in 1921, so 2021. So more or less for a year, there have been commemorative uh, projects and meetings. And uh, so, and they've all been online. So pr previously, uh, in just before the pandemic in 2018 uh, and 2019, I went to, I traveled to two places where commemoratives were held for the 50th anniversary of the publication of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It was not published in Brazil, it was published in Mexico in 1968 and appeared first in Spanish and because of the coup and Paulo's fugitive status, uh, he, uh, he, his work was uh, banned and so on. So, um, so now it's 50 years and uh, not many books survive 50 years and not many uh, appear in so many translations. Uh, and have such an impact and, and are read, uh, you know, by two generations after, after he wrote the book. So it's fitting that there be the, those were the 50 year commemorations. And then the pandemic struck and I'm sure that if the pandemic not had happened, there would have been worldwide commemorations of his centenary, his 100th anniversary. But instead we did this online. So starting about the November of 2020, I believe I had the first did the first, and uh, then there was a constant series. Uh, I spoke uh, to a group in Ireland, in uh, a group in Czechoslovakia twice, a group in Turkey, a group in Malta, 
and then several times to groups in Brazil, then a group in Mexico, and so on. It went like around a lot, and then a group at Old Dominion University. And so that's been preoccupying me for the last 14 months is uh, setting up these uh, Zoom talks. And um, it's marvelous. It's marvelous because uh, what a worldwide network and community that we never get to see except, you know, on screen. But uh, even on screen, there's nothing uh, like being on site and uh, to traveling around and meeting the folks who have different accents and different languages and are teaching in different places. It's marvelous. And that's the, that's the great hope for the next decade that this uh, commemoration has revealed that so many people of different nationalities and in different circumstances are um, curious about his work and also uh, want to know uh, uh, what what is what did he leave us and uh, where are we now and uh, what sense do we make of our current uh, conditions? So it's uh, for me, even though it's online, it's provided a lot of oxygen, and I'm very uh, grateful uh, that uh, to be you know part of it and to uh, be still alive uh, and. Um, you know, witness uh, 50 years, every, you know, every decade, it, it evolving. And uh, so um, it's, um, it's rooted. That means it's rooted and it's planted somewhere and that uh, it will continue to grow. Some years and some periods will be very bad for, for growth, like trees show very narrow rings on the years of their hardest conditions. And then they show very robust rings when uh, the moisture and the sunlight and so on and the, the warmth is larger. So I expect the growth will be uneven. That's just sort of the way history works. And, um, but that's very, that's very, re, very re, reassuring. And um, we're also like at a moment where a number of uh, crises are, are ripening and maturing. And at this moment, uh, these crises are on a global scale. So when we all meet from different continents and so on and so on, uh, we're uh, all suffering through or experiencing similar um, calamities. Of course, there's the, the, the terrible climate calamity. And then uh, there's uh, the, just the, the condition of like more or less being in a state of World War III without it ever having been declared. And everywhere you look, armies are gathering and shooting and so on. And the, the level of conflict, physical conflict is very high. And uh, then we're, uh, we're now the targets of like a very uh, extreme economic warfare from the top down that's uh, many of us saw, watched it emerge in the late 70s. It's of course, it's called neoliberalism. And in the, in the 80s, it appeared. Uh, and it began to you know, really spread its wings and it's only gotten more um, aggressive. Uh, and so we're we're now in a um, a global uh, period of um, of um, a downward what they're sometimes called the downward harmonization of wages that is like uh, American wages for the mass of folks have been stagnant for forty years and uh, other places are developing and so on and taking over manufacturing and so on and so on uh, so we have a lot in common and so that's very good. Uh, in terms of like uh, giving us a platform in which to share ideas and share exper experiences. So that's, that's very hopeful because we will need some kind of expanding uh, global uh, consolidation uh, that's uh, 
takes off from what uh, has been happening for the last 10 years or so in the, in the World Social Forum. Uh, that's the, uh, the democratic uh, alternative to the World Economic Forum and so on. So that's the way I see things uh, now and in the middle of it all with this uh, pandemic, um, we're, we're not able to move forward because it's, uh, it's such a, a global lockdown, but we're in a time when the, we can communicate and teach each other. And uh, that's, that's good. We're, we're sort of like an, an imposed seminar, an imposed global seminar that stay where you are because you have to. And so as long as you have to stay where you are, locked down, turn on your screen and talk to everybody who's um, thinking like you and uh, wishing uh, to know. And uh, that's, been, that's been the dominant thing in the last 14, 14 months. Does that help? Is that an answer of some kind to what you had in mind? Yeah, no, just what kind of what you're thinking about. And I, I think the more we can like sort of think like what are yeah, what are the what are the micro interactions where all of these like I think that probably all three of us have a tendency to sort of go to like, oh my gosh, like the neoliberalism or like these abstract um that they can seem like abstract categories, but I think probably all of us have specific examples of how um those forces show up in the like most micro interactions of like who's assigned to the remedial writing class or like what sort of dialogue is being prescribed by the center for teaching and learning or who's getting tenure or um you know what are the what what forms of surveillance are how how is how are surveillance intera- interacting right. with with lessons and so i'm wondering like just to elaborate on some of that like where have you seen, where have you seen these, these dynamics showing up, like in, in the, in spaces of learning, whether inside formal educational institutions or, um, or in other spaces of, of learning and pedagogy? Yes. Uh, well, look, um, we're all under uh, pressure to, uh, to produce, to, we're all now under aggressive pressure to enhance the revenue stream. So what all world politics is about is about the revenue stream, uh, like the fight over uh, the resources, uh, the productive resources of the world. And that fight has so many dimensions. And it, has, it, take, it takes place in uh, families. It takes place in workplaces. And educate, school is a workplace that has a very special role in society for, because it's, um, it's a place where um, a very important site for the social construction of human subjects, which means that we're the place that uh, we produce consciousness. So, you know, a, a material thing arrives in our classroom, a material being, uh, five years old, a student in, ki- in kindergarten. And then we have, uh, we have uh, like uh, custodian, we're custodians of them for the next at least the next 12 years and now more because of uh, higher education. And we're, uh, we're, we're in the place where we now have to develop the person uh, that, the, uh, that the dominant uh, system, sometimes called the hegemonic uh, authorities, uh, need uh, for, uh, to work to become adults accommodating to the status quo. This is what makes our work so important and so crucial and that the way teachers are disrespected and abused and overworked and underpaid, it's easy for us to think as educators that we don't matter. We don't count because uh, we're, we're so we're kicked around and we're not listened to. 
and that uh, so much is put on our shoulders, well, whereas so, so few resources are made available to us. But the truth of the matter is, is that the, the deeper the oppression we feel, that's because it's the, the greater the importance that we, we serve in society. And uh, that's a very bizarre contradiction that I have to talk to myself in the mirror to remind myself that this is why we fight back and want to change conditions because they're, uh, the, the invasion of uh, neoliberalism and into, um, into capturing or conquering schools, uh, school systems and education to enhance their revenue stream is, is extremely, extremely important. So that leads to concretely certain, uh, certain things. For example, our class sizes remain too large and the expectations uh, for reporting, for measuring, remain uh, more and more onerous. In addition, we suffer from a, a testing invasion of standardized testing, which is uh, enabled by a tech invasion that is so much of school district budgets now is obliged to, uh, to go to tech, to the technology to make um, uh, testing uh, possible. No other nation in the world tests every student in every, in every subject every year. This is not typical. But because we have the most uh, aggressive capitalist class and the tech sector is the most aggressive sector of the capitalist class, here we come. And we're, like, and when I go into my son's school over the years, he's now a senior in high school. But when I go to school, it, I'd walk into rooms for parent meetings and there would be like 20 boxes full of new computers that just arrived. And uh, that means we don't have money to hire more teachers. We don't have money to make class sizes smaller. We don't have money to build new schools so there's enough room to have smaller uh, class sizes. We don't have enough counselors to meet with uh, students who are having uh, various uh, troubles. We can't take care of special ed students. I, I can go on, but you know that, uh, that if money is drastically captured for one thing, uh, tech, uh, tech buy, buying tech or tech buys, then it's just not gonna be available because on the other side, the neoliberal capture of, uh, of government authority has uh, frozen, not really frozen, what has it done? It has uh, transformed the taxing, the taxing um, uh, structure in, in society. So it used to be like uh, when, I, when I graduated, when I entered college, used to be uh, that um, uh, 30, if I wanna remember correctly from the, the book I studied in this, about 39% of, uh, the national tax bill was paid by personal income taxes from your paycheck, payroll taxes. And uh, about 61% was paid by uh, corporations and so on. So that's been completely reversed. That now corporations have been able to buy the governments they want at every level because of their, their uh, spending and campaigns and so on. And uh, the, the governments they buy have, have uh, given uh, public subsidies and uh, relieve the, the largest companies of tax levies, tax requirements. So who is going to be taxed to make up this deficit that, the, that is more or less a gift to all the major corporations? Well, of course, it's working families. And that, that means that uh, they, the last 40 years, while wages have remained fairly, fairly stagnant, taxes have been, more taxes have been uh, captured from the, the, um, uh, the bottom 80%. And um, they, they don't want to be taxed anymore. And they're right. They're being taxed too much uh, when uh, the great wealth of society is not being taxed 
at all. Okay, so what does that mean? Go to school and say, all right, you must do the standardized testing. But to do that, you must have this elaborate tech operation. This elaborate tech operation has to be purchased uh, by your district uh, budgets. And every two or three years, you have to bring in the new generation of technology. And then you have to bring in the new software. And you have to bring in the new peripherals and so on. So anyhow, what I want to say is, is that we are the richest society in the world here in America. And for, for um, uh, uh, 3 million school teachers and 50 million public school students to experience austerity like this is uh, terrible. It's completely dominating and it's made, uh, it's, the, it's the everyday crisis of the classroom. Very large standardized teaching and it's deprofessionalized the, the wonderful work that teachers do. That no classroom can be managed from the outside and uh, no, no, no classroom can be, um, can be, um, let me, let me get that right. I want to get that right. Let me get it right. Okay. Every, no classroom can be managed from the, from the uh, outside and no classroom can be defended from the inside. That's what I wanted to say that we, we can't win the power and the authority to do what we know must be done unless we leave the classroom where we're not allowed to do it for all these reasons and go out there and become a political opposition in society. So if we say, oh, I'm gonna be just a good teacher and stay inside the classroom and work as hard as I can as the class size is too large, the tech buys become too onerous and so on and so on, I'm never gonna uh, get to the condition where I can uh, teach the creative and critical way that uh, that students need. So I, I have no choice but to leave the classroom and contend outside the classroom against all the levels of authority that are creating uh, these uh, calamities in the classroom. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of uh, Paulo Freire's dictum that education is either for freedom or for domestication. And you've been uh, describing the domestication and also the domination of the neoliberal um, structure. So to move from there, um, to get even uh, maybe more concrete, uh, the you mentioned in, a, in another interview that I listened to recently that the Portuguese title of your talking book with Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of Liber for Liberation from 1986 at the Highlander Center, um, that the Portuguese translation was fear and courage, the everyday life of the teacher. And if we could get you to speak about uh, sort of the, the current situation with um, a lot of teacher fear with uh, critical race theory, book banning, um, and many, many other things connected with what you've already talked about with the underfunding and, and support and respect of teachers. Um, but if you could talk about the, the maybe some, some concrete uh, forms of resistance that you're seeing. Yes. So I've talked a lot about the, uh, the economic impoverishment of public education, which has been a key feature of neoliberalism and uh, its, uh, its capture of every possible revenue stream uh, for the private sector against, against the public. Look, a parallel to, to uh, that economic policy, which has uh, been uh, becoming, which has been aggressive for the last 40 years, we also have like a culture war underway. Now, that culture war has been around forever in the United States, and it's uh, targeted uh, education very often. 
like uh, John Dewey, right after the war, John Dewey became one of the demons of the, of the conservative forces. And uh, there came out um, a book um, uh, in 1952, was it, that uh, Why Johnny Can't Read, and so on. And so that the, the attack on the public schools uh, has, been, has been a, a constant. So the, from, from the conservative forces, uh, the, um, the public schools are a danger to uh, their religious and political affiliations. And uh, so uh, we, had, we had, I believe I wrote in Culture Wars, my book called Culture Wars, that um, in the 19, 1970s, uh, education policy uh, was, this is just simultaneous to the moment when neoliberalism as an economic policy erupted and spread uh, globally. We, we also had uh, very um, aggressive culture wars and it started out against education because the, the mass movements of the 1960s, which uh, uh, promoted uh, democratic opposition for women's rights and for uh, civil rights and, um, for, um, and also for uh, the, the environment and so on, uh, had been uh, enormous and tremendous and uh, tremendous success in changing the national culture of the United States in, in a positive, positive way. This, these changes became the, the cultural targets in the 1970s. And one of the key documents that I uh, propose folks might want to read to see, like uh, sometimes, you know, we say, we call something like the ER document, you are. You are is the name of one of the, ancient, the first ancient cities in Mesopotamia around 4000 BC. And so the name Ur was discovered in their language. And so Ur became now a metaphor to describe the, the origin or the founding uh, item that spread. Anyhow, one of the Ur documents of that time is uh, by Lewis Powell called the Powell Memorandum. Uh, and Lewis Powell, uh, rather, uh, yeah, Lewis Powell was a, um, a, a very important uh, lawyer in Virginia at that time. And he was a state uh, commissioner of education. He had some other important roles. Eventually was appointed to the Supreme Court by uh, Richard Nixon shortly after. But he was asked by the uh, United States Chamber of Commerce in 1971 to write up a document that uh, why is capitalism under so much threat? And why is the American way of life uh, uh, facing uh, uh, prov provocations from all kinds of movements? Well, how do we explain it? And what should we do about it? So he wrote a document that's become famous and called the Powell Memorandum. It appeared August 23rd, 1971. And uh, you can Google it. Google, Google the Powell Mem Memorandum, August 23rd, 1971. And it's, uh, it's a relatively, uh, well, I'd say single space, about 10 or 12 pages. But it lays out a uh, complete analysis that would become the foundation of the, the neoliberal assault on one hand on schools and the political assault on the other hand. And lastly, the, the together, how the culture war should be waged. Now, the internet did not exist at that time, so he doesn't mention the internet, but he talks about mass media having to be controlled so it no longer becomes a, um, a tool or an avenue uh, for, um, for um, um, visualizing and spreading word of uh, different uh, activities of, of movements from one place to another. And if you look at, he came up with about a list of 10 items that here's the 10 things we must do to put 
to put the, the mass movements and uh, all these threats behind us. And he targeted uh, university professors, public schools, and more or less in the next decade or two, this entire agenda was uh, enacted. And it was in, he, he said that uh, uh, foundations are going to have to invest a lot more money in, in creating the conditions for, for uh, uh, reversing uh, these forces. So that's what began in the 70s. And uh, it, it, it mobilized uh, right-wing conservative and evangelical religious forces to be as foot soldiers in uh, raising questions and putting uh, the democratic uh, opposition, democratic activists of all kinds on the, on the, uh, on the defensive. So we've had, we've had a culture war and that's what I wrote about in, in my book, Culture War. And it started with um, occupationalism and converting the strong liberal arts orientation of American higher education that uh, persisted all through the six, uh, up to the 1970s to convert it to occupationalism and vocationalism because those were the, um, those were the, uh, the majors or the disciplines that were at least open to critical thinking or to questioning the status quo because they were very technical. And, they were, and the students were trained in formulas and mathematics and how to build this and how to build that and how to research this, that, and no foundational questions of the status quo, like no foundation, there were no ethical foundations. Like, is this good? Is this good for people? Is this good for the world or society? Is this good for nature to do this, to this project? Those questions, which are, we consider humanities questions have generally been erased from uh, vocational, occupational, and technical fields, which is what Paulo Freire would call scientistic. That is the science without philosophy and so on. So uh, that what, what we see now really has its roots way back. And I went to the first liberal arts in crisis conference in 1981, more than 40 years ago. And it was held at New Paltz. It was very well attended and it was uh, very agitated. And we knew we could see in the first 10 years of the 70s, that the liberal arts, the humanities, the, uh, the disciplines that, that enabled questioning of the status quo were under serious attack and that we were all being tilted towards uh, occupationalism and vocation. And the, um, that, was the, that was the start of the 1970s. Then the second phase that I studied was um, the, literacy, the literacy crisis that was launched in 1975. And we're still in that, and that that literacy crisis. So you can read the cover story on Newsweek magazine, December eighth, nineteen seventy-five, and the cover story shows a, a boy uh, laboring with a pencil at his desk, and the the text on the cover says, "Why Johnny can't write." Now that that is a takeoff from what um, uh, twenty-five years earlier was, "Why Johnny can't read." but that, um, that the, the students who were making claims against the system or demanding social justice or fighting against the war or advocating for uh, racial, uh, racial justice and against racism and so on and, and marching uh, April 22nd, 1970, the start of uh, uh, World Environment Day, uh, that, all, that all these students were declared those issues that were raised about race, uh, class, uh, warfare and environmental destruction were, were shoved to the side and instead a finger, a very aggressive finger was pointed at the students and teachers and parents that your kids are illiterate. Your kids can't read and write. What? 
what authority do you have to raise questions about race relations or, or class relations or war making or environmental destruction when you can't even read and write? And so it created an alarm, which is continuing now 40, 40 years later with uh, all the standardized testing and the tech buys that I mentioned before come out of that period when we now had to get back to basics. That's what it called. Basics meant that uh, you had to study little things at a time and uh, memorize them and, and figure them out before you can uh, think about the big, big uh, question. Then there was the third period that uh, happened and this was uh, known as the excellence period uh, where um, uh, the, the egalitarian impulse of the 1960s and early 70s that saw folks of all colors and uh, women and, uh, and, um, and, and old folks, the senior Panthers, the white Panthers, um, crowding the stage of history with their demands from the bottom up had to, ha had to have a very strong dose of uh, hierarchy imposed on it. Uh, to, to neutralize that demand from a flow for equality and democracy. So that's the excellence now is how are we going to like uh, grab out from the great mass of people like that 5% that are really smart and scholastic and do well in school and open to academic uh, reasoning and so on and make sure that uh, our schools, you know, continue to um, uh, identify them and move them forward and that's like the very old um, technique of divide and conquer, that you, you emphasize dividing a solidary mass into a mass that's at war with each other. And we had then the, the hyphenated American, the Italian American, the Irish American to divide folks in, in ways that, that made the bottom fight with its, each other instead of facing. So that, that's all, the, our, all the, what we're going through now is the, uninterrupted advance of uh, this type of uh, this type of uh, political um, philo uh, policy and so on. <clears throat> so what we've had to face now everywhere we are, whether you're at a work site, whether you're in family life or whether you're uh, for women's right, we've had to face a, an increasing diminution of the space and the rights that we that we were um, expecting or asking for in the 60s and 70s and that we took that we, we wanted uh, expanded and, and so on. Uh, so uh, that that's the, the, the uh, pressure on teachers and the difficulty of schooling now comes out of this uh, this period because it's important to remember that schools and colleges were schools and colleges on the one hand and inner city ghettos on the other were the two central, uh, generating sites of mass opposition during the 1960s uh, that uh, created a great scare in the, um, the folks at the top, the authorities uh, who were in control so much so that they, they asked one of their key uh, intellectuals, one of their key organic intellectuals, Lewis Powell, to, um, to come up with a plan, a battle plan in 1971 that would initiate the counteroffensive, and he did, and they did. And so now, 50 years later, we're in the condition of, of that war that was uh, declared against us 50, 50 years ago. That, um, you know, the, the, the Powell Memorandum, I think is such an important point to, to bring up to people. And if our, I imagine um, y'all might already know this book and many of our listeners might've seen um, Roderick Ferguson's 
recent book, We Demand, um, on student sort of student movements and institutional and corporate counter reactions to them. There's a whole chapter on the Powell memo. And one of the things that Ferguson argues in it is that one of one of the effects of this memo, which Powell, Lewis Powell writes to the Chamber of Commerce, basically saying, hey, businessmen, CEOs, like you need to get more influential in higher ed because that's where your taxes are going. And these liberal professors are mind, are, are radicalizing all of all of the students to destroy capitalism is one of one of the outcomes of this is this discourse or one of the things that fuels is this discourse of the conservative white um free market supporting student as a minoritized subject within the university. Um, so that like it, to, it, it's a, this sort of like ideological diversity thing that has been used um, as a kind of battering, um, battering ram for a lot of um, really conservative yes. policies um, that are that are more the norm in universities than the sort of like the myth of the liberal professor would um, would would give on. But of course, have been quite effective. Um, so I just wanted to I wanted to raise that. Um, and Ira, I want. I wonder if you could, so like both Tina and I are, are teachers at different stages. I have a brother who's working in an East Tennessee school that is um, under all these CRT restrictions and teachers must disclose their lessons. Um, and people who are laboring within these classroom spaces that as you said, cannot be defended from the inside. People are defending them from the outside. What does it look like to come into a classroom in these moments within an institution that is under attack? Um, and like, how, like, do you have, what advice would you give about maneuvering and yes. creating spaces of maybe not complete sanctuary, but relative shelter and transformation as we sort of, you know, go from this Gramscian assumption that like there are always cracks, there are always spaces of resistance. And, you know, even if students are being fed cookie cutter ideology in a technical or vocational school, like there are still radical impulses there that could be brought forth by the liberatory um, pedagogy yes. frame. Yes. Yes, yeah, so uh, for me, I'm uh, I'm retired after 50 years of teaching, so um, I, I don't walk into classrooms uh, in the last few years uh, where I face uh, the latest depredations, you know, against us. Uh, but you know, there all along we faced all along there have been restrictions, <clears throat> one kind or another. <clears throat> Excuse me. So here's here's what's important first that um, <clears throat> do, not, do not fight alone. So always seek allies before we begin. And Paulo Freire's famous uh, statement was, is that you can't confront the lion alone. And he learned this statement in Africa when he traveled and worked in Africa, that it takes a village to confront the lion, because if you go out there alone, you will be eaten, and so on. On the other hand, lions can be neutralized as a threat if there's a group of hunters. So, <clears throat> just one second. Drop my... Okay. So, <clears throat> when I, if I was at a school, I would look around and say, okay, how, who else is unhappy with this restriction that I can't talk about uh, racism? And uh, I nobody talks about critical race theory. That's a complete 
a loony idea because it's it's from uh, legal studies. And I taught critical race theory in graduate school in seminar in seminars on whiteness studies uh, using the literature and uh, about the uh, the assumed uh, privileges of white folks and how they emerged in history. And it's a and we use documents from law journals because it's emerged in, in legal studies. So it's um, you know it's a bogus it's a bogus idea. It's it's not real. But because it, it has so much uh, force and power and organized uh, authority behind it, uh, we have no, we can't ignore it. So first thing, if I was at a school, I would try to look around and say, who are my allies? Who are my potential allies? Like uh, who, who might, who's a, as uncomfortable as I am having to be um, a teacher who can't talk about this and can't talk about that. That's the first thing I, I it's not, it's, not it's not promising to protest alone you may have to but that's the last choice the first choice is to find allies and then to start meeting with whoever you whoever is sympathetic to uh to the opposition to you being uh, to opposing this and then start meeting and discuss uh what you're feeling and what you're teaching and what how are you going to have to change your syllabus what texts are you going to have to abandon? What texts are you being forced to use? And so on. And get very close with each other's practice and, and feel familiar in supporting each other. Build solidarity with whatever group of uh, allies you, you can find. Then together, start asking uh, what kind of, uh, this is how Paulo Ferry understood limit situations, what he called limit situations and limit acts, that this... Um, this repressive offensive against CRT is now imposing a new limit on what we're allowed to say and do and teach as teachers. So now we have to consult with each other about a limit act that will productively oppose it and neutralize it. So we have to share our thoughts all together in the room to discover what level of opposition and what kinds of opposition are we all comfortable with. So if one person says, let's do this, and the others are embarrassed to say no or disagree and don't rise, don't don't uh, say it out loud. We're going to be in a, in a we're going to, try, here's what Paulo Freire said. Paulo Freire said, we can't use power we don't have. So we have to figure out how to get power that we actually possess, power in our hands. So what, what that looks like concretely is that we're in a room together and we're a bunch of teachers who are unhappy with these new restrictions, or with tech buys, or with standardized testing, or with class size, or something like that. And we say, oh, we're unhappy, and this is what it's doing to me. This is what I'm doing. This is what it's doing to me. And we, we reach a meeting of the minds about how it's negatively affecting us and our students. And then we say, okay, we, we agree on these conditions. Now, uh, how do we act against What should we do against them? Then we start brainstorming as a group. Maybe we can try this, maybe we can try that, and we have to spend whatever time is necessary to talk through uh, a means of opposition, actual tactics of opposition, and, and imagine doing them and how we would uh, uh, act them out week by week and where we would do them and so on, who would be the target, and then see, then sense, are we really unified about this? Are we all comfortable with it? And if we're all unified and comfortable with this plan of action to oppose the limits, then we now be we now assembled power in our hands. We now have power we can use because we have a group that's agreed on we're going to do this, this, and this. 
and how we're going to do it. Okay. Now, if that with that group, then no one is isolated alone, and the the vulnerability that creates fear in teachers. That's why Paulo called uh, his book in Brazil "Fear and Courage." That uh, teachers teach individually in classrooms and are very isolated and are very poorly defended or represented by the teacher unions who are not strong advocates for the teachers. So that's, that's the origin of isolation and vulnerability, which makes people uh, pull back and become conservative and afraid to, um, to, to confront the status quo. <clears throat> In a group, that, that fear begins to reduce. So that, that fear must be reduced or else we're not gonna become <clears throat> a useful fighting force at this locale who has decided to do this and this in these ways to oppose that. So that's the starting point, is to leave the classroom and start building power uh, from, from the bottom up. Then we can ask this next question. Who, who is not in this room with us today that might be persuaded, seeing the group of us now with greater determination to join us? That we're the first group who, who, who responded to the call, let's have a meeting to discuss this. And once we've reached this certain point of development of our own group, can, who else would we approach to invite them to come into the group to try to enlarge this nascent power that we're gathering in our hand? Who could we now? That question of who can we, who could we approach as a potential ally? That question should go outside the, the school and the classroom. It should go into the community. Who in the community would support this group of teachers trying to? Uh, produce or provide this type of education for the students of our community? Are there churches and synagogues and mosques where they, they might be open to this, that they too are combating certain uh, pressures? Are there local unions that, uh, labor unions that would be interested? Are there progressive uh, city councilors? Is there, are there, is there a librarians group that is also under pressure against this? So you see, but we have to start from, we have to go to them and say, you know, we, we've been meeting and we have, we're, we're determined to, to try to act against this. And we want to discuss it with you because the larger, the more forces we consolidate, the more, the more power, the more likely will be our, our success. Now that's, a, that's an organizing scheme for uh, outside the classroom that is both school-based and then reaches out into, into, the, into the community. And part of the things we can uh, think of is like uh, in, uh, nationally, there are books, of course, books in circulation, like you mentioned about this, but there are also spokespeople who, who can, will come to locales to discuss what a danger this is and what, um, uh, what a threat it is to the future of our children who we're obliged to educate as, as citizens and so on and so on. So um, I, I, didn't, I did this 50 years ago when I, I was hired in 1971 as a assistant professor to teach remedial writing at a community college on Staten Island. And so immediately I got there, and, but in those times we thought in activist ways because of the, the period we were in. So I, I organized a group, I invited a group of teachers to form a, uh, a um, colloquium uh, that would begin to uh, um, build, build our strength. And uh, I gave it the name of the Orange Basement because uh, the only space we could find that was quiet 
was uh, the cafeteria in the basement after lunch. The, the Trinity College had been built for 2,200 students and we had 10,000. It was rollicking and noisy and whatever, very busy. So we found, we used this space and because it was painted orange, I called it the orange basement. This group met uh, for five years from the start of our uh, project in basic writing. And, and we constantly met and we consolidated and we did projects all along uh, to enhance, to, to distribute the pedagogy that we were developing and so on. And uh, then the, pro the project became um, the empire struck back and the forces that um, the CUNY, the, the, the administration in city university and the city uh, administration and the state administration and the federal administration all went to war with education this time. And we were under attack to end free tuition at the city university and to end open admission. And so now we had to, transform ourselves into some kind of unit that would now contend with this, this assault, which had, uh, which was uh, minor in the beginning, but became increasingly aggressive year, year by year. But having, uh, having set a uh, foundation that we were dead serious young teachers, that we were, we came, we were on campus five days a week, even though we had a day or two off during the week. And we volunteered to do this and do that, and all the, that we, we, had, we had developed a certain profile that gave us credibility over the long, long term. So we had something to stand on to, to raise opposition. So that's the first thing that I would advise new teachers, young teachers, uh, that is of, uh, deal with your isolation, your vulnerability, and the, the difficulty of trying to confront a, a bureaucracy and an institution Find, find allies uh, that did it then. Some other places have been more successful. Like for example, there are schools in Seattle that have successfully opposed standardized testing led by a very, uh, reported on and led by a very, very smart people like Jesse Hegopi and, and others. Uh, and so one of the things we would, I would study with the, the teachers is uh, what happened there? What did they do? And what would, what, how would we explain their success? And anything we could copy here that would uh, make us uh, more successful. Then there are organizations like uh, the um, Network for Progressive Education and the Rethinking Schools uh, Network and so on that uh, have publications and have uh, online websites. And also if you, we need anything, we can uh, put a notice there. So if we need certain resources, other, other people will, will uh, help out. And if we're, for example, going to file a lawsuit against the district uh, for um, doing, doing something, we can appeal online for support in the, in the lawsuits, which are expensive and long, long term. I was involved with a local group here when my uh, son was in uh, uh, elementary and middle school in town here. And this whole neoliberal program arrived crushingly with um, people, um, um, uh, no, probably the, the Eli, um, the foundation by that uh, billionaire from um, uh, Bro, uh, Eli Broad, B-R-O-A-D. He's a billionaire who's, uh, who spent a lot of money and asked only that everything be named after him. And he's, he's satisfied. So he set up an academy for principals and trained them in the neoliberal uh, playbook on how to become a uh, district superintendent 
and take over the district step by step. And it told, the first thing you do is you go on a listening tour where you pretend to be gathering advice from parents. And then you disappear and then you come out with a program that is that is, follows the, the broad playbook for how schools should districts should be run and so on. And you can look it up online. You can look up the Broad Playbook, the Broad Academy, B-R-O-A-D. And we, one of his graduates was sent to our town and became the superintendent. And we just began a three-year war with that person. And uh, it involved, uh, we formed a group of parents, like just, I would form a group of teachers in school. We formed a group of parents that met regularly. We uh, read things, we did research, we divided tasks. My task was to study uh, the budget uh, and figure out the, what kind of sh uh, shenanigans they were doing with the budget to finance their tech buys. And, and uh, as I studied the uh, education law, look, I'm an English professor, but when we all met, we divided up the tests and I, might, I studied education law and budgeting. And I found out uh, they were doing illegal things, which I, we then presented to the mayor to put pressure on, and so I could go on. But the, the idea is, is that we started with a local group. We did, we did forums. We tried to build support from other things. And eventually we forced the superintendent to resign. And uh, she, she just uh, disappeared mid-year. And uh, she lied about living in town. And so it's this, we, we, our job was like muckraking and so on and constant agitation. So, uh, but I could not do this alone. And uh, if I didn't have the group around me, she'd still be here and so on. So the idea of like uh, finding allies and slowly uh, cons uh, consolidating a local force uh, to work is very, very important. Yeah, one of, one of the things too in that that you've written about is the importance for teachers to build deviance credits as you call them, right. uh, which is a, a term that I like to throw around because I, I mostly, uh, squander mine <laughs> in extravagant ways and, and wind up not having any. Um, it comes and goes. But if we could hear at the unfortunately end of our, we're getting near the end of our time, if we could get you to reflect back. Um, I mean, if you and, and let's say we could bring Freire back and, and you could be at Highlander again and sit in the rocking chairs and do another, a second talking book. What would you want to talk about with him as you look back on your own career, which is still ongoing, of course, but um, and, and Frere at the you know past 50th anniversary of Pedagogy of the Oppressed and his hundredth uh, the hundredth anniversary of his birth. Yes. Uh, okay. Um, we we would need to discuss what I've been discussing with you now that the political climate has drastically changed and that while ne neoliberalism emerged and the culture wars were, were heating up, it's um, nothing like now with um, critical race theory and with um, and so on. And uh, so I, I'd want to discuss that with him. And um, uh, it's also happening in Brazil and that uh, those of us who are you know, fairy folks outside Brazil were asked to uh, compose uh, texts that we could send to Brazil about Paulo Freire's international uh, impact that could be published in Brazil to counter the uh, attack from the, the right-wing president Bolsonaro 
who uh, declared Paulo Freire a, a demon, a communist uh, demon, and that he was uh, going to re remove his title of educator of the people and so on. So I, I did a, a text and I also um, taped a video, a short video, I think five or six minutes or something, to send that could be played and translated and so on. So it's happening there, there too. But in Brazil now, there's an opposition party, the Workers' Party that uh, Paulo helped found in 1981. So there's an organized party that has uh, uh, hands all over the place that can, that can help consolidate and earn more opposition. So this is uh, what's missing in, in uh, education and in America. We have small consolidations, like the, the, the critical thinking group has been published in Milwaukee, has been publishing for 35 years um, and so on. And um, there, the, there are like uh, annual conferences and critical teaching out on the West Coast. And there's a, 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 a committee of radical educators here in New York and so on. So there are in places like uh, Portland and Seattle and uh, Northern California and Chicago and some other places there, there are groups. <clears throat> Those are, groups are very important. Uh, we don't, we haven't consolidated opposition from below enough to confront the very consolidated opposition from above. And so that's, that's the problem. Now this, this, while all the things I've mentioned before are true and they were facing very formidable opposition, um, there's, at the same time, there's been developments that I'd wanna discuss with Paulo. For example, that um, in the field of uh, gender, race and uh, sexuality, uh, queerness, there, despite the capture of all this power and wealth from the top down, that uh, women have continually made progress in, their, in the, uh, the movement for uh, gender equality. And that's, that's very good. Second thing is, is that with Black Lives Matter, that's the, the most advanced consolidation we've seen in the last 40 years of uh, anti-racist politics. Uh, and the, um, there, there are books appearing about how to teach Black Lives Matter at school, in classrooms, that are in wide circulation and really, or really pose a challenge to the, to the status quo. And then it's, it's completely remarkable that uh, gay folks have confronted homophobia and heteronormativity, as we say, in the last 30 years and completely changed around public opinion. So much so that by 2015, the Supreme Court was moved to legalize uh, gay marriage. This is a tremendous advance. And um, that, that needs to be discussed. Now, when I arrived 50 years ago at the community college, um, I, one of my best friends was, a, two of my best friends, they were gay activists. So I asked one of them to come into the writing classroom uh, to take part in a, a pedagogy about homophobia. This was 1970, 1972, <clears throat> during the early Stonewall, Stonewall days. And <clears throat> because it was college, and the, the students were of 18. I had, I had freedom to do things that would be more difficult to do in K-12 uh, for, for a certain. So uh, if, you, if I can't move it into the classroom, I would want to talk to Paulo about what it means to surround the classroom with a, a visual discourse of opposition. And this would mean uh, using the walls in the hallways as poster sites and also putting on uh, festivals exhibitions and um, 
projects where things were built, if, if the structure in the classroom were, was too limited and too vulnerable for a teacher to act, when teachers act in between classrooms or outside the classroom or not uh, during a class hour, this, the, the limitations are different because it's, this is not considered propaganda. It's not considered the syllabus as propaganda, that we're, we're not propagandizing inside lesson units or lesson plans. But when we go outside, we're now in the public sphere. And the public sphere uh, enables us to, to have uh, more rights than uh, state regulations allow in the classroom. So I would want to talk with, with Paulo about it, generating, generating that idea. Third thing is, is that the teacher unions, almost all teachers are in unions. It's the most unionized profession and field in America. Uh, so they have been horrendous in abandoning their membership. And that over the last uh, 40 years, when all this was taking place, they've been out of action. They've been hiding. And this is because they, uh, the leadership of the teachers union and of most unions is, uh, has a seat at the table of a democratic party. And as long as all the union heads are seated at the democratic party, they follow the Democratic Party line, like uh, whoever the president is, like during Clinton and Obama, the Democratic presidents, the educational policy was horrendous. Uh, the privatization campaigns and the standardization campaigns and the tech invasion of higher education accelerated wildly during these Democratic presidential 16 years. And the teachers unions, because the heads of the unions sit at the table of the Democratic Party insiders, they're not allowed to say anything. Uh, and they have to sort of like uh, try to get a little tweak here or there that so on. So I would want to talk to Paulo about that, that uh, he, he said very 40 years ago when we were doing our book, he said, teachers must take responsibility for their own formation. That is, it should not, be, we should not depend on the state, the school district, uh, or the government to organize the development of teachers, because they will organize it to to conform us to the status quo, to make us accommodate to the limits that they find uh, uh, serve them. So we now have to go outside the this time and space of the status quo and organize our own formation. So this is important now, and it still still hasn't happened. It's very important that we, whoever, however many of us are ready to talk about this, that we we develop a a very robust network of um, of uh, teacher conferences outside the union, outside the school system, and outside the school district and government. And that this would take place like uh, in time spaces where uh, teachers are most available. First of all, it'd have to be local because teachers don't have a lot of time and money to travel. Unlike uh, professors who, who are used to traveling distances when before the pandemic. Secondly, would have to be on weekends or in summers because that's when teachers are off uh, from their uh, duties or during a holiday period. So it wouldn't conflict with their having to teach in the classroom. But, and we would have to have a cadre of uh, teacher educators who uh, discussed among themselves uh, with teachers, what kind of curriculum uh, studies would be useful here? How do we do dialogics in a, uh, third grade uh, English class or in a 10th grade social studies class, how are we doing it? And uh, what are we doing to make science interdisciplinary with humanities to raise ethical 
sociological questions in science classes so as to free them from their technocratic capture. Some people are doing it and we, we all have to go in circulation now because at the end of the day, Paulo Freire writes books and many of us write books, but the, this has to become a practice, a very widespread social practice in every classroom, in every community, at every level of government. And that's the only terms upon which society changes or transforms in a democratic direction is if we, we learn how to practice these democratic ideals, the ideals of democracy. What does it mean? It's easy to say we, we must have it. And or equality, we can talk about it as an abstraction. But what does it mean to practice democracy, equality, ecology to save the planet, and peace to put an end to the, the wars that are constantly uh, uh, draining our, our riches and killing many people. So that, that is a, that's a practice. And we, uh, we, we need to do that on the ground, locally, where all practice happens. So that's what I'd want to talk about with Paulo. Thank you for that. I love the idea of like sort of thinking about different spaces and schools and using those creatively. That's 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 really great. Um, I okay. So well, we, time has just time has just passed um, as it as it does. So we are we are to our final question, wishing that we had so much more time to keep talking. And yeah. the question is always the same these days, which is, what are you reading or watching or listening to? or thinking with um, that you might want to recommend to, to the world, that yes. at least the world that listens to this podcast. Right. Well, I'm really anticipating the next installment of my brilliant friend, the Italian series that had two seasons, because it's a, a, a wonderful uh, representation of, um, of working class life and the, what the, um, uh, feminine and class oppression look like at the ground level and how one one daughter of a shoemaker uh, is uh, is able to escape up the ladder, the social ladder, and the other isn't, and the, the enormous difference that makes. And so many of us who are professors also come from working class backgrounds, uh, and that's my story. So seeing the story of someone left behind and someone climbing up with difficulty is uh, that's I'm looking forward to that at the end of uh, February. Uh, look, um, right now I'm involved in a writing project. One of my original, another, I, Paula Ferry was a most, most important mentor. I didn't meet him until 1983. Before that, when I first graduated uh, with a PhD in 1971, uh, one of my mentors was Richard Oman who was the longtime editor of College English from 1966 to 76, I believe. And um, he was a young radical scholar at that time, brilliant uh, and very interested in making changes. And uh, I met him at MLA in 19, the MLA conference in 1968. And um, I, I heard a talk and his talk was so, uh, open felt like windows opening about the politics of being a professor and academic that I approached him and talked to him introduced myself I was 23 years old and uh, he was like 37 and um, told him if I asked him if I could send him some stuff and so on. he said yes yes so I, I sent him an article a, a talk I gave on at Madison Wisconsin on what it means to be relevant which was at that time one of the memes of like the student protest 
that our classes were too abstract and not relevant. So I wrote an essay. So he, um, I sent it to him and he sent it back and he said that he can't publish this, that it's not really, not really good. But he did it in such a uh, constructive way. <clears throat> I was never offended, never insulted. He, he gave me very careful advice on what needed to be changed or what needed to be added and so on and so on. So I just continued to be in touch with him. And then <laughs> shortly I joined the MLA Radical Caucus. Uh, and then I joined uh, the, um, the Radical Teacher Collective, which met every six weeks in where he had, he was teaching in Middletown, Connecticut, um, and so on at Wesleyan. Uh, so we became friends and he was a mentor to me that I, he would call me up and say, I, this is before the internet, he would call me up and say, I need an article for the next issue of College English on this, could you write it? So I would sit down and I would write the article. So he, in a sense, pulled me or pushed me or whatever, provoked me into writing, getting into uh, the habit of writing about my practice. So I published some articles early on in College English, which was the premier journal in the field. And it uh, was very encouraging for a young person to you know, have that kind of mentoring and support. And then uh, I edited a whole journal of College English. He asked me to be a guest editor. And then uh, we published the, the papers I edited and it was a whole thing for and a whole separate book for NCTE. So it, uh, it really pulled me into development. And uh, that went on for all through the seventies. And then in the eighties, I met Paula Freire. All right, so he was very important. Dick Oman was very important in to my history, my life, whatever. Um, so I got a call that um, we're all gonna go online during the pandemic to, um, to wish him a happy 90th birthday. And we're all gonna have an online birthday party. And some people were writing limericks and poems and this and that to read and so on. And so we're all gonna do it one Sunday morning, early in July on the day of his birthday, I believe it was Bastille Day or the week before or something like that. And then uh, I was ready to go online and I, I logged on to my machine and uh, a message came up that uh, Dick has been rushed to the hospital that very morning and uh, we couldn't have the meeting. So uh, he, he's 90 years old. So of course that's terrifying, you know. And uh, then uh, by late at night, a, someone forwarded a message from Dick that uh, he's, his doctor at the hospital told him that he has a terminal heart infection that can't be treated. And uh, so he's decided to go to his farm where we used to hold meetings and uh, go into hospice at his farm. So in the morning, we were gonna have a happy birthday online with all of us, you know, work. and then in the evening, the man is uh, in hospice. And so it was very, um, very disturbing. So he said, anyone who wants to visit me, you know, can just email and come visit me. So I sent him an email, I set up a visit and I went up to visit him the next week in the um, mountains, the Berkshire Mountains in Western Mass. And um, we talked for a few hours, then he got tired. But uh, he mentioned to me, he says, um, so I asked him, I said, what, are you reading anything we can do? And so on. And he says, well, uh, I'm working on a book, he said, but uh, I'm never going to finish it. I can't finish it. And he looked to me, I, he looked so unbearably sad. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, manage, I couldn't sit there. I mean, I, I looked at his face, it's like, uh, oh my God, he looks so unhappy. It's so, such personal tragedy. So I impulsively said, uh, can I help? So he says, would you, would you finish the book for me? 
So I had no idea what the book was or what it was. So I said, yes, yes, let me see it, send it to me. So impulsively, I found myself volunteering to finish his book. And uh, then the, in the next week, he sent me all the whole manuscript, four and a half chapters, about 250 pages. And I started reading. And uh, uh, through July, August, the end of July, August and September, we were in constant um, consultation discussion. I would read something and say, you know, I think this paragraph should be this instead of that. And I think you should refer to this that's missing and take out this or that's wonderful, whatever. So I, and we were consulting back and forth. And uh, week by week, he got weaker and uh, slower and less able to, re, you know, to share it with me. And so some, one day I didn't hear from him for five days and I was afraid that he had died and that I was afraid to call up and ask. And then suddenly the next day an email came and I was relieved, he's still here. Okay, so we worked on that and we got through, uh, we went through the chapters like uh, twice, the 250 pages twice. Then uh, we we're gonna go on into the, the final draft when uh, an email message arrived October 8th that he died. So he died and uh, we all held a memory memorial meeting for him and uh, everyone wanted to know what, what is the book about? What, and uh, so I told him it's this and this. And, this. and um, so that's what I'm working on. I'm finishing his book. And I had to make some key decisions along the way. He, he wanted us to write it together. Uh, and for me to, to write the whole final chapter, the overview by myself. So I've, uh, I decided I'm not going to change the first person that I'm going to write in the eye. And I'm going to copy his voice. Uh, so that it remains, uh, you know, his his work, and that I will write the final overview in my own voice, how I see this whole material and how I would connect it to the way sc uh, schooling and and politics are are happening now. So anyhow, what I'm trying to say is that's what I've been doing. So because of that, I uh, I don't I'm, I'm only able to read things related to the research. So I. Uh, you know, and I see that there's a footnote that he says, uh, add this footnote. I have to go and do the research and I Google and find books that he's research, and I, uh, I read it and then I add it and, and so on. And uh, so that's what I've been doing. Uh, to, before this project, there's, uh, two, there's two things that really interest me. First, my hobby is, uh, is, pale, is paleoarchaeology. I'm very interested in anthropology and so on. I've always have always been. And so I decided to do a deep research into the origins of inequality in human society. And there's a whole literature on this brilliant stuff, but uh, the books are like this. They're gigantic uh, because they very closely read bones and stones and remains of a building. And was there a fireplace there or not? And, and so on. And uh, then it's DNA is added, uh, whose DNA shows a better diet? So were they the king? Is that when the king appeared? Because their bones show us they ate better than everybody. So it's fascinating stuff and I've always loved it. And then it is also involves uh, the politics uh, like David Graeber's book, uh, Debt, D-E-B-T, the first 5,000 years. And he just came out with a new book that I, I haven't had time to read, but that's what I, that's what I do when I, I'm trying to trace back the, the origins, the, the shape of inequality's emergence, because it's so 
it's been so dominant for so many centuries. It's been so settled. And, uh, and now there have been so many challenges to it for gender, for race, for ethnic uh, origin, for, and so on, that um, I, I just have to find out where we began with this. Now, we only have writing for, there's only writing uh, for the last 5,500 years. So after 3500 BC, there's really no written records. So everything else has to be inferred from all these remains and uh, where settlements were and how many rings of settlements they had and which was the central rings. So it's like, I, I, it fascinates me. And, uh, and I think that, I think you, they do come up at the end with like, a, uh, like a, uh, the Powell, mem Powell memorandum on the left, you know? Like all these things were done to uh, consolidate power and wealth in a few hands when it didn't start out that way. So I'm, that's my curiosity now, and what what I want to get back to reading when I when I finish uh, uh, Dick's uh, uh, Dick's book. Does that help? Is that an answer or something? That's a great answer. It's oh. very comprehensive. Tina, what are you what are you reading, listening to, et cetera, right now? Well, I'm going to take it down a notch. Um, I have a new favorite situation comedy I want to recommend, uh, Abbott Elementary. It's on ABC on Tuesday nights at nine, but you can also stream it on the ABC app. Um, Quinta Brunson is a, an African-American comedian uh, through Second City, uh, created this show about a young, energetic uh, second grade teacher at a poorly funded school in Philadelphia. And, and, uh, and the characters are kind of <laughs> different tropes of like the woke white guy who was in Africa with teachers beyond borders, <laughs> you know? It's, yeah. it's very funny, but it also has some uh, critique of things like gifted programs. And as you were talking about Ira, technology, um, the principle is way over the top, but not so much that it's, it's not you know, funny. When is it on? It's when on uh, Tuesday nights at nine. I'm going to watch it. Thank you. And you can get it on the ABC app. They have all the episodes there. Um, so it, it's quite funny. And I haven't had a sitcom in a while that I just laughed out loud. Um, so uh, it really, it hits all the kind of urban uh, teacher issues and uh, well, a lot of them so far. It, it's just a lot of fun. So I recommend it. Um, I've been, because I'm recovering from a concussion, I've been listening to a lot of things. Um, uh, and the, the book that I have loved the most lately is Ruth Ozeki's Book of Form and Emptiness, which is a kind of coming of age story about a kid who, um, is grieving the, the death of his, of his father and who sort of in that moment begins to hear the voices of all the objects around him talking and talking about their pain and what they're going through. And so it's sort of a meditation on animacy, but also loss and also neurodivergence and what it means to hear, hear the voices of, of the world um, and what, what that's like. And there are some, there's some hilarious, if you, it, there's 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 some like academic humor in it there's like a 
there's 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 it's it's there there are parts of it like it's there are parts of it that are very satirical so there's a satire of Marie Kondo's tidying up in it um like the the kid's mom is a hoarder which is really hard for him since he's hearing all these voices of the things that she's hoarding um and but she's like continue forever not reading the tidying up book that she has at the house or like (laughs) there's a character based off of um Slavo Zizek um, in the book, who is a sort of, um, he's an unhoused guy who's a, an exiled Slovenian poet who is a genius um, and who's mentoring the, the protagonist when about like hearing lots of things. Um, anyway, it's, it's a one, it's a wonderful book. And it was one of those books that was like satisfyingly, like it was, it was pretty, it's pretty long. Um, but it was one of those books that I was so glad was long because I didn't want it to end. Hmm. Tell me the name again, the title. Uh, Ruth Ozeki. Um, I don't, I might be mispronouncing her last name. The Book of Form and Emptiness. Book of Form and Emptiness. I'm ready to, 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 yeah, to, it's really, it's really, really good. I think one of, one of her previous books was, um, a Booker Prize finalist, so she's she's kind of she's Ruth known. Ruth. But this is my the first I've read her, so I'm excited yeah, I've, to I've heard dive in more. Yeah, I love the sharing of resources here. Yeah, I do and Ira Shore, thank you so much for returning to our humble podcast. And <laughs> uh, after five years, I know five years. Happy anniversary! Thank you, thank you. Follow Ferreras. Yes, I'm looking, yeah. looking forward to uh, five years from now, we'll talk again, and yes. we, will, we will be <laughs> dancing in a new period, a new political period, where the ideas and the dreams and the plans we make really see light of day. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, let's hope so. Stay well, Ira. Thank, Thank you. you so much for being bye-bye. with us. Bye-bye, Tina and Lucia. Bye-bye. been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast, and our fifth anniversary. Hard to believe it's been five years since we first talked to Ira Shore, and we were able to talk to him again. And we are so grateful to Ira and all the interviewees over these five years. We have learned so much. For me, it's like studying for a final exam every single month, and it's I'm so grateful because I'm learning so much uh, and being challenged in really new ways. And our um, interviewees always have such amazing wisdom and experience to share with us and with you, our listeners. Um, I especially want to thank our music uh, offerings. Um, Lance Eric Hagen, who wrote the intro music and the interstitial music and also uh, orchestrated and performed on it with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. I want to thank Paul Myrie for his gracious donation of his music for the outro. And uh, Aaliyah Harris, our our recent audio engineer, who is uh, fantastically intuitive and skilled 
uh, and is creating her own music, um, hopefully more for this podcast. And um, to uh, Lucia's brother, Mark, um, who has given us such great music. Um, uh, May he rest in power. So thank you for listening these five years and spread the word. We have, after nearly five years, or really now five years of running the Radical Pedagogy podcast, is mostly self-funded and by the seat of our pants, we've decided to open up opportunities for our listeners to support our work. Your donations will help cover the cost for maintaining our website and streaming services, as well as the pay for our amazing audio editors and student interns. Thank you in advance for your encouragement and support as we've taken this journey together. So you will uh, can look for Nothing Never Happens on Patreon.com. And Lucia and I will be, for those who donate or subscribe, I suppose is the correct word here, uh, we will have additional content uh, from uh, discoveries that we've made in our own um, study and in-depth look at uh, higher education and K-12 education and the debates um, going on uh, nationally and internationally. So thank you for listening and looking forward to the next five years. Do, do, do.